What's going on, you brilliantly bouncy bumblebees? Welcome to this week's episode of Total Pod Mode, episode number 48, no less. My name is James, also known as Mr. Bames, and I'm joined, as always, by the wondrous Will, also known as Hootafunk. What's up, listeners, and hello to you, James. You all right, mate? Very all nice right, to see I'm all you. good. Good to yeah. see you too, buddy. Got a nice, exciting, action-packed episode for you this week. We've got our usual catch-up. Some interesting things in the news. Potential end of a saga, question mark? Highly unlikely, but still. New access controllers and some remasters to talk about before finishing off the episode with uh, another saga. A different kind of saga. Lots of fights. Lots of violence this week. We'll get into that when we get into it. First, let's hit them socials. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pod Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on Twitter by searching for at Total Pod Mode, or one word. Or you can find me at Hoodafunk on Twitter, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. And you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. So, Will, talk to me, man. What have you been playing this week? So, this week. I managed to actually put a few more hours into Resident Evil 4. About time. So picking up the game, I started off in the maze section with Ashley accompanying me, where you fight various kind of mutated zombie wolves. The three or four doggos that chase you around that maze? There is uh, a lot more than three or four doggos in the remake, and actually I think in the original as well, but uh, yeah, the the amount of dogs has been significantly ramped up in the remake, it felt like. Running around that maze was pretty tough, I gotta say. I think it probably cost me about about two continues uh, overall, mostly just because of the uh, the surprise, but you kind of make it a fine art on your third attempt going through these sections. And uh, yeah, it was fun. It had a few more twists and turns than the original. Uh, was obviously laid out slightly different, and the solution to the puzzle was actually to raise three flags, and once you've uh, uh, raised those, a gate would open that allows you to progress onto the next area. As opposed to just getting to the middle, wasn't it, the last one? No, I think that you had to get two halves of an emblem in chests at a uh, different parts of the maze and there was a couple other hidden goodies around much similar to the remake as well there were additional bits and pieces to collect and i guess kind of potentially avoidable encounters with walls if you didn't explore the whole of the maze but managed to get through that section and uh you actually spend more of the castle being accompanied by ashley than in the original one which is kind of cool because she functions a lot better than she does and uh, i actually progressed on to a bit shortly after that where leon gets trapped in a cage and it's actually ashley's turn to rescue leon for once is that the same cage that you get trapped into with big blind matey or is it just a completely different set piece? It's a different set piece, but you're imagining almost entirely the same thing, though. Uh, yeah, if, if you're comparing it to that, absolutely, yeah. Leon just ends up basically being kind of attacked by various archers, as well as some people that drop into the cage. He does quite a bit of stabbing, and then like kind of using the enemies as human shields to protect himself from the people trying to pepper him with arrows. So they've definitely kind of amped up the Hollywood feel as some of the action scenes there. It feels a little bit closer to Resident Evil 5 style of cutscenes, which I quite like. And Uh, at that point you assume control of Ashley where you're kind of navigating your way through the underground passages trying to find your way out of the castle and uh, a way to help Leon get out of the cage and you probably remember doing a similar section in the original game where you're pursued by pretty much just regular Ganados at that point just regular castle cult followers that are trying to attack Ashley and she needs to pick up lanterns and throw them at them in order to uh, set them on fire I don't remember that no okay, I only yeah. remember, the only Ashley section I remember when I played was the upskirt section you know where you're crawling through like all the 
the things trying to escape that room. I wonder why that one's stuck in your memory in particular. Because we spoke about it on the podcast <laughs> and I joked that it was an upset simulator. Oh, yeah. That's why, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that's the only reason. <laughs> yeah, coming from the guy that stood at the bottom of ladders to deliberately try and look up her skirt. Mm. I guess you were goddamn achievement. <laughs> anyway, uh, back to Ashley. So you assume control of Ashley. Instead of fighting your way past regular kind of castle cult people, this time round, you actually need to avoid more of the suits of armour. Do you really not remember a section where you have to avoid uh, suits of armor as Ashley as you're walking down a corridor a different ones lunge out at you and you've got to press a QTE to avoid the lunging statue I remember that bit but I don't remember anything about throwing lanterns maybe you just didn't pick it up and just ran through the area maybe, instead yeah. it is a possibility to, to use that to fight the enemies maybe you just oh, chose fair. to run past them or away from I was them. playing quickly so probably yeah in this section, however, you do get a blue lantern and it's kind of hinted to you earlier on in the game that this blue fire that they seem to be collecting around the castle can actually petrify the parasite that is infecting the various cult members as well as the suits of armour in the game. Because in this one, they've actually fleshed out and explained why the suits of armour are alive. Obviously, they have a parasite inside them. And they now have a weak point around their body. Sometimes it's on their neck, sometimes it's on their back, and it's an exposed portion of the parasite outside of the kind of medieval plate armor. So you push through that section as Ashley using your blue light to avoid the monsters. It's a pretty much a one-hit kill if you do get hit or ambushed by them. And you just need to find a few puzzle pieces in order to get out of that section and get back to Leon. But it was much more fleshed out than the original, and they definitely spent a bit more time making it fun and a bit more interesting which was really appreciated, and I had a much better time going through it in the remake than I ever do on Resident Evil 4, which at this point has become very formulaic, given what I mentioned earlier about using the lanterns to just defeat the enemies. Good to hear it's giving you more enjoyment in that section. Bit more use of Ashley, maybe. Did feel a little bit like just the sort of tack on because they could from memory. Because there wasn't many Ashley sections where you controlled Ashley, was there, in the original? There was just the one. There was yeah. just the one. And that's kind of a theme of all of the Resident Evil games uh, in terms of there is always a section where you at some point switch over to another person. Well, I say always is probably an exaggeration, but think back to Resident Evil 2 where you played as uh, Ada or as uh, Sherry. And uh, also Carlos in Resident Evil 3 as well. Have to take your word for that one yeah <laughs> uh so i'm making good progress through the castle i think i'm probably just about to come up to a boss fight now because at this point we finally did get separated ashley and leon and uh it's now up to leon to i guess go rescue her from salazar and i'm looking forward to fighting him as well because from memory that's a big mutated boss that you have to fight and i'm looking forward to seeing how they've redone that one i've heard that they've actually changed the way that that boss functions a little bit so interested to see how it works because up until now most of the boss fights are very similar to their counterparts in the original game. Well, I, I can't speak much to that boss fight because that was a one-shot. Yes, we all know that you cheated your way through Resident Evil 4 with an RPG. <laughs> cheated? Cheesed. Cheesed your way through. There's cheated, no, no cheese. not cheating. I used in-game currency to buy them, mate. I pretty much say that cheesing, uh, cheating is in the definition of cheese. Not at all. I disagree. <laughs> You're using an unfair advantage to make the game easier for yourself. If that's not cheating, I don't know what is. Well, because if you can pay for it with legit currency in the game, it's not cheating, it's intended. What What do you have to pay for? 30,000 pesetas for the rocket launcher. If you collect the money and you can afford it and you buy it and you've used that inventory slot, it's not cheating, it's just you playing the game a different way. I guess so, yeah, I can appreciate it, but it does seem still like uh, kind of you miss out on quite a few of the fun parts of the game by using that technique. I don't know, I found it very fun. Very fun to press a button and watch a cutscene. Yeah. In comparison to actually playing a fully-fledged boss fight. In this instance, yes. I didn't enjoy the game that much, if you remember, so it was, yeah, I was yeah. quite happy with it getting through it. Oh, you know, we can't all be, uh, <laughs> we can't all be <laughs> Resident Evil fans, I guess. Yeah, yeah. 
But uh, moving on from Resident Evil 4, because I put that shortly down after that, I actually picked up Tekken and uh, continued my way through that, mostly playing with the uh, arcade mode on it, spending quite a bit of time in the practice mode as well, just mucking around and trying to get some of the longer combos down, practicing on some of the juggling techniques as well, to try and get some of the longer moves out and experiment a little bit with what they can do. And at that point, I was using an Xbox controller wirelessly for the PC, and I found that using the uh, the claw grip with those smaller buttons was actually getting quite difficult in order to pull off some of the longer combos, especially because a lot of them require a sort of rhythm and timing to them. You can't just press all the buttons really quickly in one thing. You have to take breaks and certain pauses in between combos. So at that point, James, I, I reached out and actually bought myself a little arcade fighting stick on Amazon. It was only about 30 quid, and uh, yeah, I've been having a great time. Excellent. Talk to me about it. What's, what sort of different? differences are there presumably it presumably makes your movement a bit better makes your inputs a bit more accurate it's definitely inputs and timing a lot more accurate because the buttons are a lot larger and spread out you just feel like you can have a lot more of a positive input on the buttons yeah. and the way that the buttons have that slightly springy feel to them just like an arcade stick gives you that kind of bounce back that you need to just be very precise with how often you tap something so i'm finding it's making a huge difference in terms of the reliability for pulling off these difficult combos i mean it's pretty typical that you'll try and start a combo in a game and muck it up but i'm finding i'm a lot more consistent using the stick as well i can believe that because you're sometimes using the small buttons because i was using a controller as well when i play it uh, you do hit the wrong button sometimes yes or you exactly hit two that, buttons yeah. at the same time and you accidentally use the throw which is only useful in very like very specific situations. You don't want to be doing that in the middle of a combo. Yeah, exactly that. But uh, all of this altogether actually led me on to play quite a bit of Tekken, and I was having a really fun time playing that. And as you're probably aware, the Steam sale was currently going as well, so I had a little bit of a fighting game frenzy and uh, stretched out and bought a few more titles as well. And by a few more, I mean several more titles so i picked up uh injustice 2 mortal kombat 11 that was 199 so don't blame me for that marvel versus capcom 3 i mean you need a soul caliber to complete this and game, soul caliber 6 there you go okay sweet nice. yeah 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 so uh yeah they were all extraordinarily cheap games i think the highest i paid for one of them was about seven pounds but uh the mortal kombat 11 ultimate edition plus injustice 2 deluxe edition was about six pounds so, uh, yeah, I did, did really well there in terms of getting some really, really discounted titles. Nice. Had a good week for getting games in then, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it was kind of, it, this may well be like a sunken cost fallacy that I'm slowly digging myself a deeper hole into. But, you know, you kind of, you start off with Tekken 7 and you're like, ah, oh, the controller's really not quite doing the job. Time to get an arcade stick. Like, well, I bought an arcade stick now, so I need some fighting games to play. Can't just play Tekken <laughs> 7. <laughs> Before you know it, you're uh, like knee deep in more fighting games than you will ever have the time to master but uh yeah so which one's your favorite then bud if have you have you even played all of them yet is it too early to say you've got a favorite based on a pretty educated guess out of all of these fighting games i have a feeling that i'm probably gonna end up liking marvel versus capcom 3 the most i am a sucker for very very fancy visuals over the top combos kind of like 100 plus hit combos yeah, and the yeah. fact that that game delivers so well on all of those things, plus an absolute gamut of uh, awesome fighters to play against, both on the Marvel and Capcom side. There's plenty of fighters as well that I didn't actually have the opportunity to play as. Having purchased only the original title, there were characters like Nemesis from Resident Evil 3 that I never got to try out. 
Uh, and I'm really looking forward to actually giving some of those characters a go as well. But I think that the overall tone of that game probably appeals to me the most. And then uh, I kind of also gravitate towards Mortal Kombat as well. I think that I, the last one I properly played of that series, I think, was Mortal Kombat 9. And uh, then played like a handful of 10 as well. Uh, and I'm looking forward to getting back into this one because that's kind of feels like very familiar territory to me. Used to play that one on the Sega Mega Drive a lot. So, yeah, I guess Injustice is kind of the wild card there, the one that I wasn't too sure about and I only really picked up because it was ridiculously cheap. Also produced by Ed Boon as well, so, uh, you know, kind of like an Mortal easy Mortal Kombat there. with superheroes, basically, you know? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much, yeah. Minus uh, absolute gratuitous violence, but still some, like, pretty awesome shit. Doesn't Superman fry someone's insides with his x-ray vision or something? Yeah, but it's kind of still kept to that level. It's like, you know, the equivalent in Mortal Kombat would then be innards spilling out everywhere yeah, and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. And then he like starts playing piano with the guy's f***ing jaw or something. But... Still pretty gruesome though, for, for Superman at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like they get f***ed up, which I'm looking forward to checking out. So uh, we shall see. But uh, other than that, no, it's been a long overdue trip back into Resident Evil 4 and then just uh, a little uh, final flurry of fighting games. So, uh, with that, man, over to you. Uh, I have had a relatively lean week compared to last week, but still a couple of things I can talk about. Can't say I'm surprised, man. You had a pretty hefty week last week. Thanks for filling in again. That's all right. You sorted me out the week before where I did absolutely f*** all, so it's fine. Um, I finished up Stick of Truth. Oh, very good, yeah. Wasn't a particularly, like, long amount I had left to do from last week. I think another maybe two or three hours at most. Did manage to get all of the chin Pokemon, did manage to get all the friends. Nice, So nice. that was good times. Did a little completionist run on that then? A little bit, yeah. I haven't got 100%, but uh, 46 out of 50 or something like that, that's good enough for me, really. Nice. Uh, but that was good fun. I uh, really enjoyed it again the second time. And I will be playing um, The Fractured But Whole at some point, but I want to give myself a little break from South Park because uh, you sort of get super into it for like a week or two and then... I find that you need a little break from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that you can kind of overdo that sort of entertainment, I think. But then I too had a little sort of spending spree again this week on some very cheap things. Oh, you double dipped in the Steam sale. I, I may, I like triple dipped. Oh, you haven't stopped dipping. It's just been one consistent big old dip. It's not even really a dip, mate. At this point, you just went swimming. Yeah, well, I always do, mate. It's, it's rare that I'll spend less than £70 in a Steam sale because I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> but yeah, so I picked up a... Basically a bunch of Pokemon ripoffs. Okay, yeah, yeah. Did you buy Temtem? I've had Temtem for over a year. Oh, so fine, okay, yeah. Got that when it was still in early access. It might even still be in early access, to be fair, I'm not sure. But no, I got um, a couple of games uh, from the Nexomon series. Oh, okay, not familiar with that. No, I'm not particularly. I had one of them on the Switch, um, but they were there's two games, I think, Nexomon and Nexomon Extinction. Oh, jeez. Ne- what was that one about? <laughs> Does it do what it says on the tin? Do these uh, just, like, end of Nexomon? I don't know because I haven't played that one yet. Oh, right. Okay. But yeah, I picked them up and uh, I think they both combined was, I think, I want to say £10, £11, something like that. And I picked up another game called Dragon Spirits, which is sort of by an indie developer. Um, similar sort of thing, but you collect Dragon Spirits, as the name suggests. That's quite a cool little game. It's got a really nice art style. It's not translated particularly brilliantly from Chinese to English, but it's done well enough that you can understand what's going on. Sometimes that can add to the kind of charm of a game yeah i don't think it's really got that going for it this time but the rest of the game looks nice and plays nice so it's fine um but can't really comment too much on more than that on any of those because i haven't put enough time into any of them really nexamon i've put in like a fair few hours but most of it's been grinding so i can't really talk about story yeah and then the other thing that i picked up and played this week was um ao tennis 2 because it's wimbledon this week and last week and i got a little bit hangry there you go you fancied it 
Is Top Spin not available on Steam? Uh, if it was, it wasn't on sale. Oh, fine. Okay, yeah. So I got AO Tennis 2 again because it was £10 or something, and that's quite decent. Takes a little bit of getting used to. It's a little bit more... Um, you have to sort of aim your shots by moving a dot on the court and then releasing it at the perfect time with the perfect power. And if your power or spin is slightly off, you'll just hit it out or it will oh, drift right. out. Okay. So it takes a little bit of time to get used to, but I've played a bit of that and getting used to it, getting better, but it's not going to be a game that I spend hours and hours playing. It's going to be if I fancy a bit of a run in a tennis game. I'll just jump in that for a few hours. I'd love to tell you that over the coming weeks, I'll play these games more and tell you more about it. But honestly, knowing me, it's probably just one of those Steam sale impulse buys and I might play a couple more hours here or there. Yeah, it's just a summer fling, you know. When I met you in the summer. I do need to start a big game again there soon. I've been thinking that it's been a minute, or it feels like it's been a minute since I played something like substantial, substantial. So watch this space on that. But that is all my updates for this week. So unless there are any further questions, Your Honour, I think we'll move on to the gaming news. So our first news story this week, an update on our favourite ongoing saga, Will. Oh, geez. Is this good or bad news this time? Uh, a little bit of both, if I'm being totally honest with you. Honestly, I can't remember which side of the fence I'm sitting on at this point. So after months of discussions, court cases and mudslinging, Judge Jacqueline Scott Corley turned down the FTC's request for a preliminary injunction against Microsoft and Activision Blizzard, stating that the FTC failed to show that the acquisition would significantly harm competition, even indicating that the deal may actually improve accessibility for some gamers. So, story over, right? Well, not exactly, because on the very next day, the 12th of July, the FTC announced that they would be appealing the decision, getting in quick before the appeal deadline of the 14th of July, today at the time of recording. Of course they did. So Team Microsoft are naturally not thrilled with this, with Microsoft President Brad Smith noting, We're disappointed that the FTC is continuing to pursue what has become a demonstrably weak case, and we will oppose further efforts to delay the ability to move forward. Although they also go on to say that they are confident that the US will remain one of the 39 countries where the deal can be closed. Interestingly, this all comes at a time where the UK's CMA also seem to be softening their stance, with the CMA pausing legal action to consider new or altered proposals from Microsoft. Is the end finally in sight, Will? Or is this just going to be the gift that still continues to keep on giving, what, f***ing eight months later, nine months later, whatever? I'm going to go out on a limb and say the latter. 100% the latter. There is no way this is over. Uh, the CMA pausing legal action to consider new or altered proposals. That was always coming anyway, you know, absolutely with their objections to the case. Microsoft are always going to come back with ways that they can get around that. You know, we even talked about certain services or aspects of a game not being available in other countries. It's been done in parts of Europe before in terms of loot box action within games that has been removed to fit in with local laws there. I think there's absolutely a chance that we'll see a kind of a counter-offer sort of different option put forward by Microsoft. And who knows, that may well even become the sort of the universal approach, seeing as the amount of objections that they're also receiving from the North American market as well. You know, I, I think the they may well just sort of cut something down to appease them and it may well have been their deal all along you know you go in with a high offer knowing that it's going to be shot down but you still get more than you hope for uh yeah i kind of agree i don't think it changes much the deal's due to close next tuesday at the time recording 18th of july i don't see this impacting that it will just impact the specific countries that are involved and i cannot see a situation where the us or the uk don't want cod to be sold in their countries so i can i'm sure this will all get sorted out i'm sure jim ryan's gonna be pissed but that's what i mean they're gonna come up with an alternate proposal to get around these things is, is very likely to happen from my perspective 
I think that in order to get these things to appear, they will just make some minor changes to get around the legality or the the major concerns there, or just put an extra clause in that kind of appeases some of the counter arguments. Or they'll just play hardball. I think Microsoft eventually win either way. Do you really think Microsoft will be willing to play hardball and be like, okay, fine, you don't get Call of Duty then, <laughs> North America and the UK? I guess you're just not in the market for Call of Duty. I think it, I, I think I'd be surprised. There's certainly like a lot of people would rally that- against their governments. I need Modern Warfare 3, you sons of bitches. You joke, dude, but you know people would. <laughs> you know there'd be fucking riots outside number 10 if that happened. Give me Black Ops 5. I think they're literally like shit would go down if that <laughs> happened. So no, I just think Microsoft would actually be in a very strong position now. The fact that the, uh, the judge has turned down the FTC's request because it's basically saying they don't really have much of a case, I think says a lot. And I think that uh, the FTC will have their tails between their legs, even though they're appealing it. I think the CMA will also have the tail between their legs. It's like, oh, shit, the FTC lost. That makes us look like dicks now, too. So, yeah, I think uh, Microsoft is sort of uh, in the driving seat at this point. But uh, we shall see when more things happen in the coming weeks. Watch now next week something come out saying that the whole deal was off because Phil Spencer called someone a cunt or something. Like, you just never know. So now to talk about the other side of that coin, our second news story this week relates to Sony. They have officially revealed the release date and price for their PlayStation 5 access controller. Sony's PlayStation 5 access controller will officially launch on the 6th of December 2023, having been in development for five years. It is set to be priced at around $90, although this will also be dependent on individual retailers and obviously local currencies and things like that, and it's due to be available for pre-order from the 21st of July. So, here are some key specs that you can expect to see with this bad boy. It consists of a joystick and circular keypad with a 360 degree orientation. Very funky. It comes with 19 button caps of various shapes and sizes and 23 removable tags to mark the buttons for ultimate customization. It allows users to swap buttons and create custom configurations with said buttons. Users can map multiple functions to the same button. The controller can store up to 30 different control profiles, and it has four AUX ports so that third-party accessories can be used alongside it. And it looks like quite a neat piece of kit, this. Bit of something for everyone, no matter what your disability may be. You can sort of customise it, move it around to fit your needs. I think it looks quite funky in that respect. What do you think, Will? It's got an interesting design to it. To me, it resembles kind of like a, a Simon Says game with too many buttons on it. The fact that you can configure it and swap the buttons out is is definitely interesting. And obviously, it makes sense given that you've got 30 customizable profiles, which you'd obviously have different profiles for different games that you're playing, depending on which game plays necessity on using or using certain buttons more often. I do think that this one's a bit of an interesting one in the sense of the fact that it's completely programmable, but you can also move the buttons around and change the labels. Surely you can just do one or the other. The fact that you can take off the buttons and move them around and the fact that you can also reprogram the buttons. I'm just kind of seeing a bit of a disconnect there. Like, why both? Because all the buttons are always going to be in the same position. I assume that you wouldn't be using the controller like missing buttons because why would you sort of thing? So, I mean, I I guess it is just all in the name of accessibility. Not all of the design quite makes sense to me, but I mean, I suppose that comes from a position of not really understanding the specific requirements of a controller like that. I mean, I'm sure that plenty of market research has gone into production of this controller. Yeah, absolutely. It does look like a bit of a jumble and 30 buttons seems a lot, but again, various accessibility levels is trying to cater to everyone. I think it's quite neat. It'll be interesting to see how it goes down. It actually looks like it's only kind of got nine buttons on the face of it, and I assume that those other 30 buttons are sort of just additional optional ones that you can 
peg in or swap out. But I don't think that it has sort of 30 buttons that you can hit all at one time, potentially. No, not at all. But you wouldn't ever need that in a game, right? No, no, no. I think even some of the most complicated MMOs don't use 30 buttons, although I could be wrong on that. I just look at it and I think that, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the buttons actually function. It definitely seems useful that they've got, when you look at them, they've got some that are ridged upwards and some that are ridged downwards. That definitely has adaptive uses there that would be very useful for people with different disabilities as well. I guess I'd be quite interested to actually see one of these being used. And with our final news story today, this is one I thought would be of interest to you, Will, given your revelations in our Christmas special last year. The Gex trilogy is being remastered. Oh, that is good news, James. That is very, very good news. You can play that old Christmas level to your heart's content. <laughs> I can spend hours playing the first level of a game that I played as a f***ing seven-year-old or something. <laughs> so as Will sort of intimated there, kind of with his response, I'm not really sure how many people are actually clamouring for this, but regardless, Limited Run will be bringing the trilogy to modern consoles for the first time. How f***ing dare you, James? Everyone's clamouring for Gex 1, 2, and 3. Yeah, I'm sure I can f***ing hear them all on their rooftops screaming. So as I say, it's coming to all modern consoles, Xbox, PlayStation, Switch, the works, uh, with the originals having released on the PlayStation 1 in the 90s. Announced at their own showcase, no release date details have yet been confirmed, but I speculate it could be some time given that Limited Run are also working on a number of other remasters, including, but not limited to, Clockmaster, which is a point-and-click horror game. Sing to me, Limited Run games. Tomba, which is a cult PlayStation 1 platformer. Oh my god, they're making a man moist over here. And a physical version of Chicory, A Colourful Tale, which was a 2021 indie darling, which I believe was critically acclaimed, but didn't get the love it deserved. Okay, I can't sustain this one. I didn't even hear of that one either. I've not played or heard of any of them, so I can't right. really <laughs> add much context to this. But I know that as a PlayStation 1 boy back in the day, well, you probably have some experience in these. Any of these tickling your balls? Yeah, so Clockmaster is a game that I played much later via emulation, but it's a very much a cult classic. Not particularly one that I have any nostalgia for, but I would be looking forward to checking that one out. Very unlikely that I would uh, actually pick that one on myself, but looking forward to seeing a, a YouTube video of someone playing that through. However... Tomba and Gex are both titles that I'm really excited for, particularly Tomba in this case, which was a sort of 2D cross 3D platformer, which also had RPG elements. You had various melee weapons that you could upgrade and equip throughout the game. It had pretty standard RPG feel and you wielded a kind of flail, but you didn't actually have a, a handle for the flail. It was very much just kind of a ball on a chain that you held. Uh, and you would go through fighting kind of demon pigs who appeared to be taking over the land and turning everything into what looks like kind of pink mushroom clouds, like all the trees look like they're covered in mushrooms. So despite the kind of cutesy look, it's somehow corrupting the land. I can't really remember the specifics because it was all very zany, but the game had a great sense of humour, really well done animations, and it had a real kind of unique feel to it. And the combination at the time of 2D and 3D, where the levels had multiple layers that you could go deeper into, was really impressive to me as a kid. I'd really wish I could add some colour to this, but I really, I don't even know if I know what this looks like. You're just a kind of weird pink-haired dude in green shorts and you've got long, spiky pink hair. That's pretty much it. So it sounds like I don't need to add any colour to it, but um, terrible joke. But yeah, no, I, it sounds quite interesting though. The whole sort of uh, purple mushrooms taking over the trees corruption thing sounds kind of neat. Yeah, I think that you would probably quite like the look of this game. Unfortunately, you don't actually get to see any footage of any of these these remasters in their announced trailers. Gex 
had a pretty decent one where it was absolutely teasering a kind of a, a new GoldenEye slash James Bond game where it had the classic silhouette of James Bond walking, but then very quickly gets slapped away and turns into Gex. I was a little concerned about Gex's voice. I do not remember Gex sounding like that, and I don't know how I feel about uh, Gex's new choice of, uh, of voice actor, given that we probably only heard a line from him. This could be a Chris Pratt situation, but I'll be interested to hear more of that and to find out what they've done to my boy Gex. Well, they had, he had three voices anyway, didn't he? They definitely swapped out voice actors for him over the years, yeah. Maybe that's what I'm hearing. I heard the European or the UK localization version of his voice. <laughs> I don't know. Whereas no doubt this remaster would feature, if there was a variation, it would be the uh, the North American version. And for Tombo, we didn't see anything other than what is essentially just kind of like a remaster or... I don't know whether it's just a HD upscaled version of the original cartoon uh, introduction to the game, which features kind of Tomba running around the landscape causing a load of chaos. So really interesting to see just how well they get into remastering these games. Limited Run to me is, uh, is a game company that mostly focuses on physical releases and re-releases of games, but hasn't necessarily been too heavily involved in emulation, at least while I've had my eyes on it. However, I was looking into it a bit today and they have a new engine that is actually porting over quite a few of these games and acting as a kind of interface between modern hardware and old school games. Essentially, it's kind of like a collection of emulators that they're using to uh, put these titles out again for modern hardware. Excellent. Well, hopefully we'll see some more of the same then. Maybe they'll be the ones that finally do Bloodborne. Who knows? Are these going to be remasters or are these just going to be kind of emulated, slightly upscaled games as well? So I believe it's kind of a mixture. I think that some of them are just ports. I think the Gex series specifically are remasters rather than just ports. Tompa might be a port. Don't hold me to that, but it might just be a port. Honestly, that game wouldn't look bad by today's standards either. The 3D elements, perhaps, yes, but the 2D elements were just really nicely drawn anyway. So, so yes, that's fine. And I think that Shikari, A Colourful Tale, I think that is um, just becoming a physical version. Presumably it was digital only before. Fine, I, I okay. Don't, I don't yeah. know, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think kind of a mixture of all of them. So interesting stuff from Limited Run, and uh, it'll be very interesting to see what else they potentially come up with in the months and years to come. And with that, we come to the end of the news for this week. So why don't we sidle on over to Completionist Corner? Here we go for the Completionist's Corner. I was going to say eagle-eyed viewers. What's the listener equivalent of that? Eagle-eyed listeners? Eagle-eared listeners? Who knows? Dog-eared listeners? They're pretty good at hearing. Yeah, right. that's a fair point. <laughs> okay, so dog-eared listeners may remember last week uh, that I mentioned uh, very briefly the story of Tekken 7. Will has very briefly mentioned Tekken 7 at the start of the episode in his catch-up. It should come as no surprise at this point that the game we will be talking about this week is Tekken 7. It just seemed fitting somehow, for some reason. Yeah, I'm sure it was nothing to do with the fact that we both picked it up in the Steam sale and wanted to play it. I'm sure that had nothing to do with it. Liar! So, a few little key stats about Tekken 7 before we get into it. It's obviously the seventh mainline game in the long-running Tekken series. Um, there have obviously been other sort of auxiliary titles around it, should we say, the Tekken tag titles, and I believe there's also been a bunch of spin-off games that I've never played. Yeah, there was an action fighting Nina game where you uh, you yeah, actually kind of bring fought up, your yeah. way through the level, yeah. I played the demo of that game years ago. For Babby Will, it was pretty decent. I think there's others as well, but uh, yeah, huge franchise, whole host of spin-offs and things like that. And a bit of crossover with some pop culture. I'm looking at you, Gone from Tekken 3. There's a guy from Walking Dead in Tekken 7, so that's pretty neat. I mean, Bruce Lee's been in Tekken since the start, basically. Shout-outs to Law. Oh! Um, so this game came out in 2015 for Arcade, 
and uh, actually took quite a while to get to consoles. It didn't come out on consoles worldwide till 2017, um, at which point it was sort of inducted into the Evo fighting scene, and it's been running ever since, I think. Um, sort of only really sort of starting to run down at the moment, and even that, it's not slowing down. We're just waiting for Tekken 8 at this point. Yeah, if anything, I'd imagine it's kind of ramping back up again in preparation for Tekken 8. It certainly worked its magic on me. I mean, that definitely formed a part of my decision in picking up Tekken 7. The story of Tekken 7 basically follows straight on from the story of Tekken 6, which I never played, but basically the big bad of that game was drawn out of hiding by Jin Kazama by Jin starting a war, basically. Yeah. Yeah, that le- I think his name's Azazel. Azazel, I think. I don't know if he's a demon or what. But he's a demon, yeah. He comes out, Jin kicks his ass, and here we are, Tekken 7, the war ensues. So, the story of Tekken 7 chronicles the war between the Mishima Zaibatsu and G Corporation after the events of Tekken 6, as I've just said. So the game's story is chapter-based and is told from the perspective of a reporter whose wife and son were killed in the conflict, with the reporter looking to get dirt on both corporations to ultimately take them down, getting his revenge. And at this point, it is probably worth talking about the style of storytelling in the game, because it's quite interesting in my opinion. So we have these sort of comic book-esque style stills, if you like, with our reporter here acting as a narrator over the top of it, talking in the first person about his experiences with meeting the characters of the game. And this narrator has an absolutely, I mean, deadpan even feels generous. This guy feels like somewhere in between, like an AI-generated voice of that TikTok dude that you always hear, where it's kind of just computer-generated anyway. It sounds like they've taken that and fed it through another AI machine, because... There is no drama or suspense, regardless of what this guy is saying, for any of the narration of this story. Big thumbs down. Big thumbs down for the voice acting here. I don't think he's quite as robotic as the TikTok thing you've just mentioned, but oh, I know exactly what you mean. That he lacks emotion. Not quite I'll as robotic, but very robotic still, I would say. There's, there's a twang of it in there. Wooden. Very wooden. Regardless of what he's saying, he has the same tone of voice throughout it. No matter how epic a thing or disastrous a thing is that he's describing. It's like someone's reading their memoirs to their nan. It's quite, yeah, it's funny, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just, it's, yeah, I know what you mean. He reigned over his empire until only recently. He was also the one who started this damn war, which took everything from me. I dreamed of one day killing him with my bare hands. But to offset some of this, we do get some quite good action cutscenes sort of interlaced after the narrator's spoken and before we fight in various scenarios. And those are very good in my opinion. Yeah, I like the one where Heihachi just starts f***ing kicking heat-seeking missiles out the air and back at the people that fired them at him. That was pretty memorable. What I quite liked about these as well is that all the characters um, talk in their native tongue. They do, and they all kind of act like they are completely bilingual as well. So how the f*** they understand each other, I don't know, but uh, hey, video games, right? And we should also probably at this point, for those listeners that aren't fans of the Tekken series or know nothing of the context of this, we should probably mention three of the main characters, two of whom we've already mentioned just talking about the game. So, the characters it's probably worth getting into now are Heihachi Mishima, who is the founder and the previous leader of the Mishima Zaibatsu. All-round dickhead, I'd say. He's sort of portrayed as the bad guy throughout most of the Tekkens, although actually some of the revelations in this game made me feel a bit more sympathy to him, I've got to say. <laughs> yeah. But we'll get into them as we get into them. I actually shed a few tears in this one. Uh, we have Heihachi's son, Kazuya Mishima, who is the leader of G Corp and notably is half devil, 
just let that sink in for a bit. We do get more into that later, but that sort of forms the crux of the entire Tekken series. Yeah, pretty much. And then the other character we'll mention at this point is uh, Jin Kazama, who we've already mentioned briefly in the intro there, who is Kazuya's son and the leader of the Zaibatsu, although he is missing in action after the events of Tekken 6. So at this point, no one knows what the f*** he is. He also has the devil gene, it is worth noting. Yes, that's right, yeah. So, with a few of the key players there mentioned... Let's get a bit more into the story. Nina Williams, an assassin working for the Mishima Zaibatsu and Tekken series stalwart, has taken temporary charge of the Zaibatsu in Jin's absence and has focused the Zaibatsu's efforts on locating Jin. However, sensing the vacuum of power and an opportunity to regain control, Hihachi infiltrates the Zaibatsu HQ, fighting off a small army of Tekken troops before taking back leadership and forcing Nina to work for him. And as I mentioned earlier, this is the scene where uh, Hihachi is kicking away the rockets that are chasing after him. Yeah, going outside, up the building in a massive outside lift, like all fucking buildings should have, right? <laughs> it's kind of like the level before the final boss in an old school fight and beat em up style game. And these Tekken troops, as you've dubbed them, uh, he manages to fight his way through hundreds of them completely unarmed just because he is that much of a badass. You say completely unarmed, he's got electricity in his body, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, like, he keeps on saying that he's not a demon, but, I mean, humans don't just have electricity flowing out of their body whenever they get hyped, so I'm kind of leaning on the fact that Heihachi is not, like, entirely human either. To be fair, did you ever play Tekken 4? Did I? Uh, no, I didn't play Tekken 4, no. Because Jim Patchy, who we do mention very briefly, later in this he's Heihachi's father he's not human yeah yeah he's no got chance. like the crazy the crazy sideburns that dude like the crazy upward sideburns his sideburns go up the way Heihachi's kind of like balding sides of his hair go up on his head. well it's not just balding mate you see him later with hair and he's still got them yeah that's true yeah when he had the hair as well he, he still did it <laughs> so now back in power Heihachi heads to Europe to meet Claudio Serafino, head of the Sirius Marksman, an underground network similar to the Stonemasons or the Illuminati, also hunting demons, forms a part of their pastime as well. Heihachi turns up unannounced, assuming that Claudio will be willing to help given his reputation, however, this is not the case. So naturally, Heihachi, being more of a fighter than a talker, end up having a fight to determine the outcome of their relationship. I think Claudio was part of that too, he didn't seem too willing to talk, did he? Heihachi basically said like, you turn me down, I'm gonna slap the shit out of you, and then the guy said, you know, I was hoping that you'd take no for an answer, I guess I'll have to show you. <laughs> like, he was up for it. Which, oh yeah, he was for sure, yeah, he wasn't just gonna go lying down. So what do you think of this fight, man? New character as well, Claudio, to the series in this game, I believe, so. Well, this was a nice little fight, because actually I think that this is one of the first kind of proper, proper fights in the game that you get against another person. Heihachi is mostly fighting the Tekken troops early on in the game, and before that, you're playing kid Kazuya getting his ass kicked by uh, Grandpa Heihachi there, or Father Heihachi, I should say. And uh, in that section, you're pretty much powerless, and it kind of starts off as you have to lose the fight, don't you? It, you there's no way to win. It's that a story fight. B. It's not. Yeah. It's not a fight. Yeah. You just do it for story. Yeah. So this is your first proper fight, and you actually get to control Heihachi, which is really nice. He's got a very familiar move set if you've played any of the previous games. And yeah, this was a uh, pretty straightforward. Just kind of mash the buttons. I think that the game adjusts its difficulty, and at this stage in the game, the game hadn't properly synced up with me, so I found that this fight very much a walk in the park. Uh, I wasn't aware of that. I thought you set the difficulty of the story mode right at the start. You do, yeah. There is three tiers of difficulty. 
However, maybe it's purely in the arcade mode, but I've noticed that I've been shooting up ranks in that because they start off essentially being brain-dead opponents and they slowly get better. Yeah, that is just in arcade and treasure hunt and things like that. You start off at whatever it is and make you up to first Dan and then all the way up that ladder. I don't think it does it in story mode, though. Fine, fair enough. I mean, I, I found Claudio to be pretty brain-dead, or maybe I'm just familiar with Heihachi, and at that stage in the game, they didn't want to make it too difficult. I don't know. No, fair. Well, completely different experience to what I had. It wasn't the most difficult fight in the game, but... Uh, Claudio is an interesting character new character as I say he has a lot of sort of I want to say gun moves but he doesn't have a gun so he kind of just like pulls arrows out of the air and just sort of throws them at you quite quick not too much power but got through it two phase boss fight basically beat him once he recharges and then you beat him again that's right yeah all of these are kind of justified into multiple rounds for these boss fights isn't it it's either they take a break and have a conversation and there is actually a lot of conversation traded in between the fights that they have in the cutscenes as well. Yeah, not all of them, but yeah, a lot of them. Seems sure. very common to kind of like just be exchanging words whilst you're hustling with each other. <laughs> Video games, man. That's what we do. Yeah, it's it's very kind of like uh, anime style in that sense as well. Well, it is an anime game ultimately, really. It's got very strong anime uh, vibes going on, yeah. So, having beaten Claudio, Heihachi lays out his master plan. He hopes to capture images of Kazuya in his devil form, believing that doing so will shift public opinion in the Zaibatsu's favour. Claudio agrees to the plan because they're now best mates. You know, he's just kicked his ass, they're now best mates. Yeah, that's what happens in the world of tech, and you beat them up and now they work for you. And Claudio also mentions that he has sensed a powerful force in the Far East, which he initially thought may have been linked to the devil gene, but, as it turns out, has no connection to either Kazuya or Jin. More on that later. At this point again, we hear from the monotone reporter who has been researching the Mishima family history. He has learned that Heihachi's coup against his father, Jinpachi Mishima, the death of his wife Kazumi, and Heihachi throwing Kazuya into a ravine all happened in the same year, which he notes is a pretty big coincidence. Or, in his words, that seems a little bit coincidental, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, a United Nations intelligence group has located Jin in a desert town, but he evades capture long enough to be rescued by his half-uncle, Lars Alexanderson. Lars takes Jin to Violet Systems, a company owned by Li Xiaolan, to recover and plan next steps. Yes, and at this point, we should probably give a bit of detail into Lars and Li, as they are relatively crucial characters to the Tekken series, particularly Li. He's been in all, I don't think he's been in all the games, but he's been in the series since Tekken 1. So, we'll start with Lars, because we mentioned him first. Lars is actually Heihachi's illegitimate child, only conceived to prove that Heihachi doesn't carry the devil gene. Heihachi's been getting around a lot more than I was aware of, uh, as was exposed by this game. Oh man, they're all f***ing incest yeah. in this game, it's crazy. Like, everyone's related in some way, it's really f quite It's quite well written, but it's just bizarre, some of it. Um, but yeah, so as a result, Lars has basically just got a massive chip on his shoulder, and doesn't like Heihachi at all, for good reason. And uh, Li Shaolan, who is my boy, as uh, he was my Tekken 4 main. I'd completely forgotten about him though, so I can't have loved him that much, right? But saw him in this game, I was like, oh hell yeah, let's pick this guy up. Always wears a badass purple suit, legend. I actually really like to play this character as well in the arcade mode. He is a very good character. Yeah, he's awesome. And uh, he is actually the adopted child of Heihachi, and he grew up with and was a childhood rival of Kazuya back in the day. Uh, so naturally he has a lot of information about the devil gene, the Mishima family in general, and the whole feud. All round top bloke as well good sense of humor we like lee so at violet systems lee has repaired eliza boskonovich who is an android in the image of tekken staple dr boskonovich's daughter who was created to protect jin in tekken 6 
basically uh, Eliza just gets absolutely wrecked. I think she gets like her memory wiped and she gets like her core destroyed and stuff. So it's pretty miraculous that Lee was actually managed to fix her in this game. Well, you say miraculous, but in the Tekken universe, it kind of seems like people are just capable of surviving anything. I mean, we have uh, someone survives an orbital strike. I actually gets blown up like five times in the game and actually somehow still is alive by the end of it. He's managed to fake his death at least twice. <laughs> it's crazy. Just because a character got like caught in an explosion does not mean by any means. I think Nina survives an explosion. Some of the characters you can make kind of uh, like excuses for them, like, you know, an android girl, obviously recovering parts and putting back together. I don't think there's anything particularly special about Nina other than the fact she's a badass. I mean, I would kind of compare her probably to someone like Ada in the Resident Evil 4 series to bring it back to that. Ada survived a big fall, but I don't think they ever blew Ada up. Anime, mate. You don't need to explain <laughs> these things. It just happens. If you like scenes where people rise from the rubble, punching a fist in the air, this game is for you. Despite this being a pretty miraculous feat, fixing up Eliza, um, they barely have any time together before the Zaibatsu attacks the compound, hoping to retrieve Jin whilst he is weak. However, after some fights, including a gruelling few rounds of us controlling Eliza to fight Nina Williams. So there's some good fights, this. Nina was tough. Nina was real tough. But eventually, as Eliza, we do beat Nina. And the trio of Lars, Lee and Eliza are able to escape with Jin, blowing up their building to bury the Zaibatsu remnants in the process. After this has all gone down, the reporter meets up with Lee and Lars and ends up standing by Jin's bedside with Lars. At this point, he narrates that all he wanted to do was kill Jin whilst he had the chance, given Jin is the reason that the war was started, and is therefore in some way responsible for the death of his family. However, he is discouraged from doing so by Lars, who states that whilst he had the same thought, Jin is the only person capable of stopping the conflict. And at this point, Lee states that the reason behind Heihachi fathering Lars was to confirm that he did not possess the devil gene as mentioned previously. This proves that the gene originated from the Hachijos, Kazumi's family. Yes, more on her a little later. From here, we are whisked back to the Mishima Dojo where Heihachi is sat meditating. His meditation is interrupted, however, by a strange presence, which turns out to be the mysterious force sensed by Claudio earlier in our tale. This force turns out to be none other than Akuma of Street Fighter fame, making a guest appearance in the Tekken series. I was blown away to find out that this guy was in the game as vanilla. This for sure seems like a DLC type feature character that you'd be super hyped about, but it blew my mind to actually see them fight. And this is another example of an awesome fight scene between the two of them. Yes. Well, which one? Because we have quite a few, right? But it turns out that Akuma has actually been saved by Kazumi in the past, and all she wanted in return was for Akuma to promise that he would kill Heihachi and Kazuya if Kazumi failed to do so, as she predicted that both would engulf the world in war and destruction. And at this point, we have this kick-ass fight that Will's talking about here, um, with uh, sort of, let's call it three rounds, really, because it kind of is. You have one fight, uh, and then... It briefly has a little pause when the dojo gets attacked by an army of jacks. Uh, it's worth mentioning at this point that jacks are cyborg tools of destruction, originally designed by Dr. Boskonovic, uh, I believe at the request of Kazuya, although it might have been Heihachi. Awesome to see Heihachi and Akuma team up for this fight as well. Very similar to how previously when Kazuya and Heihachi were forced to team up and they were kind of fighting each other, or at least Kazuya was fighting Heihachi in between beating up the people that were attacking them, you get to see Akuma and Heihachi go to toe-to-toe -to -toe with a bunch of jacks. 
Which have basically kind of look like massive muscle men, but they're robot people, aren't they? Exactly that. Cyborg bodybuilders. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Yeah. After that sort of cutscene bit, we have what I'd call the proper fight of Akuma versus Heihachi. And it's worth noting at this stage, you've been controlling Heihachi for a lot of this. But actually, this fight, uh, you control Akuma both times. And uh, I actually really struggled with this one. And I'm not ashamed, but also slightly ashamed to admit I had to turn the difficulty down for this fight eventually. I could not use Akuma. I just couldn't do it. I, I, I struggled real hard. He felt really slow, really sluggish, which I know he's not. I've seen good players use him and he's wicked. But I really struggled with this. I had to turn it down and I still barely won. Yeah, you just need... It's them Street Fighter inputs, man. It's a different ball game to Tekken and uh, obviously porting him into it. They have actually included all of his moves from the other series as well so he's very fun to use i found him but that's because i do have a bit of a kind of casual background with street fighter as well and although i didn't play akuma very much a lot of his moves function very similarly to other characters like uh like ken for instance or ryu akuma's a complete badass and actually he uh features in another one of the fighting games i picked up this week uh marvel versus capcom Badass in both games and uh, controls exactly the same. Good for me. <laughs> and that was and the interesting thing about this is uh, so slightly off topic, but actually when Akuma was introduced as part of Tekken 7's roster in the Evo fighting scene, you actually had Street Fighter players playing in Tekken because they could use Akuma. Yeah, quite that's well. awesome. But yeah, the main thing I struggled with this, other than not being able to use Akuma, uh, was actually Heihachi had, uh, there is a special name for it, but I've forgotten what it is, is um, they go semi-invincible, and you can attack them, but you won't stun them out of their move, and they just can then just wail on you. Yes, And I yeah. couldn't deal with that with Heihachi. Heihachi's a really difficult opponent to fight. I remember him being the opponent that I struggled with the most in Tekken 3, uh, and I don't know if that means anything comparatively to Tekken 7, but uh, yeah, no, I, I don't blame you for struggling against Heihachi. Yeah, no. He's a badass, like, tough character. Akuma defeats Heihachi with his ultimate move, and assuming that he's dead, proceeds to G Corporation's Millennium Tower to find Kazuya. However, Heihachi, being the crafty old bastard that he is, survives, but decides to have the Zaibatsu declare him dead to the public so that he can enact his master plan from the shadows. Oh, sneaky bastard. So he uses an orbital satellite to actually capture images of Kazuya, who is now fighting Akuma atop the Millennium Tower, transforming into his devil form before spreading the images worldwide. Ruining G Corp's public image. Yeah, kind of hard to uh, get behind a company when their CEO is literally the devil. A devil. Literally a devil. <laughs> yeah, there's loads of them. I know what you mean though. I'm being, I'm I'm splitting hairs with. Them, they kind but. of they kind of play with that idea a little bit in that because I mean Heihachi does refer to him as the devil sometimes, but I assume that's because of the personal connection that his son, the devil, is way worse than any of the other devils. <laughs> it's his own fault for getting seduced by the devil, shagging the devil, fucking conceiving that, another devil who then conceived another devil. It's just, you know. Never put your dick in devil crazy, hey, Haji. If that wasn't enough, he then uses the satellite's orbital laser weapon to destroy the Millennium Tower, literally vaporising this massive skyrise building, hoping to take out both Kazuya and Akuma with this orbital cannon. This time, however, it is Kazuya's turn to survive, and in a fit of rage, he uses his devil laser power to destroy the satellite, crashing it into the ground below. The wreckage destroys a small town when re-entering the atmosphere, which leads to the Zaibatsu's reputation also being destroyed. 
it feels very kind of Team America World Police in this situation, where they're both just fighting each other, actively making the world a much worse place for everyone. Yeah, family feud, you know. Yeah. This has happened. <laughs> so our good friend, the monotone reporter, uses the chaos and uncertainty to contact the Zaibatsu about his expose, but he does not get the reaction he thought he would, with Heihachi offering to meet him in person to give his side of the story. I mean, at this point, he must have been half expecting a gun to the back of the head. Ah, oh, yes, follow me in, follow me in. I'm staggered he went. Hey, I've got all this dirt on you, f*** you guys. I'm about to release it. I know everything. You want me to come to you one-on-one? -on -one? Yeah, sure, I'll be there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, no problem. I'll bring the camera. Yeah, although to be fair, he was kind of right to uh, go because he didn't get hurt. In fact, Heihachi just talks to him about how he and Kazumi used to be training partners at the Mishima Dojo, leading to them falling in love and having Kazuya. All was idyllic until the night he learned that she possessed the devil gene and was actually sent by her family to kill him. A proper example of playing the long game, in my opinion. Bed the man, sire his child, then say you're going to kill him. Yeah, kind of like destroy the entire bloodline. Exactly, but all she really ended up doing was uh, strengthening the bloodline, kinda, I guess. Caused the world war, but hey. You know, a small price to pay. For laser beams that come out your forehead. Good times. This revelation led to Heihachi being forced to kill her in self-defense, and we see a touching cutscene where we can see the conflict in Heihachi before he finally snaps her neck. Saying that uh, she's no longer the, uh, the Kazumi that he uh, fell in love with. She's uh, been lost. Lost to the devil. Wow, she was the devil all along. But at that point, I don't think he knows that. <laughs> the snapping of Kazumi's neck set off the chain of events leading to the present conflict and in-family feuding. Suspecting that Kazuya had inherited the devil gene from Kazumi, Heihachi threw him off a cliff at the end of Tekken 1, stating that should the boy survive, his fears would be confirmed as truth. Heihachi taking a kind of Middle Ages witch hunt type approach there to finding out whether your uh, your son is indeed the devil. It's like, so what happens if he didn't survive then, Heihachi? Do you just be like, do you just write that one off as a loss? Yeah, I guess so. I don't think he ever really liked Kazuya, though. And, and to be fair, I don't know when he did that. For me, the giveaway was the big red eye. I mean, surely that's clue that he's a f***ing devil, isn't it? I hadn't noticed that Kazuya had that red eye as a child, to be fair. Certainly when he comes back out of the cliff, he does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After revealing all of his past, Heihachi has the reporter escorted back to Lars and Co. before travelling to the volcano for a final showdown with Kazuya. And he doesn't really do this in a very friendly manner. He kind of coshes the uh, journalist over the head and kicks him out. Oh yeah, I've written it more friendly than it was, for sure. Like, actually what happens is he basically has the guy, like, handcuffed and blindfolded and taken to a random pier. Yeah, knocked out, and by the time he comes to, he's surrounded by Lars, right? <laughs> I awoke several hours later in a daze. But yes, epic showdown, Heihachi versus Kazuya. I've got to say, the setting for this was excellent. In the mouth of the volcano, lava spewing everywhere. I'd be too hot. Once again, Heihachi, I don't think that humans can just walk around barefoot in a volcano, dude. I think his whole thing would have set fire even if he was like... 10 more meters away from that. Volcanoes are insanely hot, right? And uh, they're just kind of splashing around in the lava. Yeah, kind of. Not quite, but kind of. As they're running around, you can knock someone over and there is literally lava splashing. Like, when yeah, you knock them yeah, into the ground, lava splashes. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> the way you said it was like, are they running through puddles of lava? That's how I envisioned it. But no, I... That's still a pretty apt description, I would say. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah, I guess, yeah. <laughs> but I, I can kind of... I don't want to use the word justify this because I can't justify it, but I can sort of explain it away Tekken-wise at least. So I believe that through his years of training, he has sort of centered himself so much that he has all the electricity coursing through him and that gives him superhuman-like powers 
enabling him to survive. Yeah, I think you're you're right there. And Akuma actually does state earlier on, when questioned by Hihachi, why didn't you come find me sooner if if you were told to come hunt me by Kazumi? Akuma basically just says, I was waiting for you to get stronger, kind of suggesting that Heihachi at that point was considered too weak to even try and face him. And he didn't want it to be an unfair fight, which again is like a very kind of measuring my power level type thing. It's a very Akuma thing to say as well. Yeah, it's a very anime boss type thing to say. I wanted you to be powerful so I could test myself to the fullest. So, so I had to use at least 2% of my force. Yeah, all right, Goku, chill out, mate. But yeah, no, this fight was cool. You once again take control of Heihachi. And uh, I think the way it's actually sort of done, I believe it's across two or three rounds this again. There is. There's a lot of exchanged punches between them that separate around and then back out. Basically what happens is you win every fight, but essentially Kazuya still beats you every time. And we have normal Kazuya, we actually fight full-on devil Kazuya in this bit. More devil than he's ever been at that point as well. More detail, for sure. Well, he's actually got kind of like all the all the devil it almost looks like a devil suit of armour, a bit like how Dante looks in Devil May Cry in his devil trigger mode, whereas the devil mode that he did when he shot the satellite and when the Heihachi court was recording him, he still kind of had human skin, it was just off-colour. So I think he's deeper into his devilhood. Yeah, there's levels to it. He's not purple anymore, though. He used to be purple back in the day. He's now sort of a sort of a blacky brown. Had a few design changes there. Yeah, but uh, no, this was this was a very powerful fight. I felt um, Heihachi also does his like Super Saiyan power up, and that's pretty much exactly what it looks like. It looks like a Super Saiyan power up. They have a great little few fights, and it actually ends with uh, Kazuya sort of seeing all the times in his past that Heihachi's been a dick, and he summons all his anger to finally take him down. It's quite brutal. They do that. In another section earlier as well, when you're slapping around Kazumi in that fight just before you snap her neck, occasionally as you punch her, you'll have her come up on the screen like as a as a nice memory back in the past. So they actually do kind of inject some uh, some moments into the fights throughout the story mode that you just don't get to see otherwise in regular fighting arcade modes. No, exactly. It's a quite well done in that regard and then the fight finishes with a qte of sorts because a lot of these kind of coordinated fight ends where it obviously wants to go into a cutscene where the other character isn't on the floor the game kind of forces you to press r1 or right bumper equivalent on the console uh, in order to kind of trigger that final cutscene bit of the fight. So after this epic tussle in an equally epic backdrop Heihachi is finally defeated by Kazuya in a mirror of scenes from Tekken 1 and Tekken 2, and possibly other Tekkens, because I'm sure it happens in more of them, but Kazuya throws the limp body of Heihachi into the molten lava, presumably killing him, although you can never count Heihachi out. That is very true, yeah. But this was literally, he was thrown into a pile of lava, so I'd be staggered if he survived. It means nothing. It means nothing, James. He will be in Tekken 8. He'll be in he'll Tekken 8, be in yeah, Tekken for sure. <laughs> yeah. Even if he just comes back at the end, he'll be in Tekken 8. You're going to see just the same thing, just the fist coming out of the lava. It'll be like rewinding the final scene of Judgment Day where Arnie comes out the lava now. And he'll finally, finally just be bald. He'll have no fucking hair left. <laughs> I want to have, like, the tips of his hair just be singed. Or they come up and it's lava and then it melts off. <laughs> so, fade to black and credits, right? Well, kinda. So upon completing this fight, you are actually kicked out of the story mode. Jobs are good. But this unlocks a, f a special chapter where the true final fight of the game takes place. Kazuya, in devil form, following the fight with Heihachi, admires his work, but is interrupted by none other than the now supercharged Akuma, not dead from the tower being destroyed, who is here to complete his mission. Cue epic demon evil crazy people fight, baby. 
And in this one, we actually get to control Devil Kazuya. Yes. In his full devilly glory. That was a nice twist on things, because you kind of expect that you're fighting the devil version of something, as is sort of tradition in the Tekken games. Nice that they turn this one round and put you in that seat for once. Well, I think in Tekken lore, Akuma is worse than the devil, apparently. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, that just adds to how badass I think Akuma is. And to be fair, like I, I've sort of playfully written super akuma here but he does have an aura around him he seems like me playing against akuma you can see how someone who can actually play with him can use him he was quick powerful his combos were brutal very very good fight i didn't actually lose to him in the fight fight i lost to him a bunch in the aftermath because you have to press a certain button which i didn't know about but yeah this it was a really fun fight every time though I, i i never lost but i always felt in jeopardy Gotta say, I did wonder whether there was some scripting that meant that he actually had to get you to quite low health, because I could never seem to get it. So like, even if I was playing what I considered to be really well, I never seemed to be able to stay above half health, because I think it needs to have a certain amount of health so that if he does hit his die a thousand deaths move, it actually kills you. Yeah, yeah. Did you notice that? They tinker around with the health values to make it that way. I think actually in the previous fight, the Heihachi versus Kazuya one, there is a certain point where you're supposed to have very low health at that point kazuya's punches are doing like no damage to you and your punches are still acting as regular attacks so yeah they definitely do things to kind of play with you and uh script things out a bit differently how they go about that i'm not sure but it's pretty evident which i don't know how i feel about it's a story mode so it's fine everything goes in story mode if you want to put any bullshit in a game do it in your story mode yeah because i actually thought that was how you won i thought right you have to beat akuma with over half your health left because then he can't kill you but no, could never do it. But very good fight. Did you? I'm assuming you enjoyed it too. You have any issues? No. Do you know what? I don't. I didn't hit continue once in this whole game. Uh, in the story mode, I think I just boshed it. Very nice too. You're you're clearly a much better Tekken player than me. <laughs> yeah. The fight ends with both Kazuya and Akuma using their ultimate abilities. With Kazuya's presumably landing first, as we controlled him for the final battle. The result of the fight is ultimately unknown, although we do know that Kazuya has survived and is to unleash even more destruction on the Zaibatsu, and therefore the world. Akuma's status is unknown, although it's highly likely he survived and is just going to head back to Street Fighter World. And the last thing we see is the reporter, Leon Lars, wondering what will happen next before a now-awake Jin enters the scene, vowing to end the war that he started by killing Kazuya. The saga continues. Violence breed violence, baby. Yes, that's pretty much the Heihachi bloodline, isn't it? And pretty much exactly what Kazumi described that Heihachi was going to do. So it kind of feels like she really set the wheels in motion for that one. Uh, But, you know, kind of a bit of an odd one. Be like, oh, you'll destroy the world. And then kind of being the pivotal role in actually like producing the devil sons with Heihachi and it's literally all him. her fault yeah. yeah I mean it's literally yeah. all her fault if she doesn't bang Heihachi like it's, it's does none of this happens well if it isn't the consequences of my own actions but no I, I really enjoyed this story some of it was a really nice trip down memory lane as well because sort of interspersed throughout a lot of this you did see clips of like the actual gameplay footage from Tekken 1 Tekken 2 some of the other Tekken's so it was really nice they had some nice flashbacks for me it was challenging but a good challenging. As I say, I did have to turn it down for a couple of fights. That Akuma versus Heihachi one being the main one that I struggled with, couldn't hack it. But That's uh, not to say that I wouldn't say this wasn't challenging. Like, I had to switch on to do this, like, to get through. I, I wouldn't say that I, like, actually, like, just blasted through it. That's literally exactly what you said. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, I guess I I did in one sense in the fact that I didn't die, but I also wasn't like, apart from the first couple of fights where I felt like they were particularly brain dead. Any Tekken troop fights was brain dead, I'll give you that. Those were easy. Oh, I was talking about the, yeah, more particularly the fight with Claudio, but again, I don't know, may have been a, a fluke. But uh, yeah, no, a very enjoyable game. I'm calling it right now. Heihachi does turn out to be a devil and he triggers his latent ability after being chucked in the volcano by Kazuya. And I'm looking forward to seeing Jin face down against Heihachi in the next one. I reckon Akuma saves Heihachi with the premise being, I didn't kill you. It should be me that kills you. So... I'm bringing you back so I can fight you later. That's a cool one as well. But as you said, it's unlikely that Akuma will be in the next one. Oh, no, he won't be in it. I just think that'll be what they say. And the final boss fight of Tekken 8 is going to be Jin versus Kazuya. And they'll both start as humans and they'll both end as devils. And I wouldn't mind betting the reveal at the end is Heihachi coming back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I truly think that they'll like fight. Jin will be just about to kill Kazuya or something. And then you'll hear... A little I slow clap. actually walks in the background, yeah. but does like some monologue. You see the hair cuts to black. I think that'll be how Tekken 8 ends. <laughs> but no, so that about covers the story of Tekken. And normally that would be the end of Completionist Corner. But I just thought that um, as we've both played it a bit, I'd just get a bit of an opinion on some of the other characters in the game that you've played with. Because really this story, as the name implies it being called the Mishima Saga, focuses mainly on the Mishimas. And it results in you playing about six different characters, maybe, throughout the course of the storyline. But were there any other characters that you played as that you particularly wanted to bring up? I've, I've mentioned sort of mine already, like Lee Shaolan was my guy. I'd also like to give a special mention to DLC character Kunimitsu, because I really liked Kunimitsu, the original Kunimitsu, should I say, in uh, Tekken's 1 and 2. Um, and this Kunimitsu is uh, her daughter, who's taken up the mantle of Kunimitsu and is now Yoshimitsu's enemy. Bit of a shame just how many characters were kind of missed out of the storyline or kind of got sidelined there. I'd have liked to have seen a few more characters actually be around in Tekken. I mean, it was kind of odd to not have someone like Yoshimitsu feature a bit more prominently in the game, actually. Yeah, player's uh, character episode. That's oh, is their character? Okay, that's cool, that's cool. Okay, so they, they do get their, their flowers at some point in the game. Yeah, right? not as much, but you do get a little sort of story beat. You get one fight, and then you can do the opposite side of that fight. Fine. So, for example, the first one you unlock, or one of the first ones you unlock is um, Brian and Bob. Oh, right, Bob, yeah, yeah. You can see it from Brian's side, and then you see the same thing from Bob's side, and you get a little bit of information that way, but it's not a lot. It's one fight. That's fine. I mean, like, yeah, I'm more interested in the kind of the cutscene that you get as a reward, because that was always the thing that I was hunting for in the earlier Tekken games, was do the ten or so arcade fights that you needed to do to unlock the cutscene for each character. Yeah, the one I'd recommend doing, given that you've mentioned some of them these characters before i'd recommend you do the one that is um huarang and devil jin that's cool because i really like huarang as well and he was actually one of the characters i was going to list as the the characters that i really liked in tekken 7 yeah well you actually see the story of how he loses his eye that's cool yeah because i was spending quite a bit of time searching for huarang on the character list because i was looking for kind of like a red-haired biker dude looking guy uh was not expecting a black-haired dude with an eye patch he has like a red streak in his hair still but that's kind of about the only resemblance that he has to Huarang from uh, Tekken 3. Although I do think there is an ability to go in, customize characters and unlock a lot of their original outfits, which is really cool. Outside of that, uh, I really like Julia as well, who um, I believe she was Native American in uh, the first or second Tekken. Her mum was Tekken 1 and 2, uh, Michelle. 
Oh, right. Okay, okay. And she does, she does have a Native American outfit in this one, too. Oh, she does? Okay, yeah. In this one, she just seemed to be wearing, like, jean shorts and a pink flannel shirt. So I was like, yeah, that's oh, I her guess default, they've, yeah. they've kind of turned down some of the uh, the allusions to kind of real-world cultures and things like that. No, I think it's, like, outfit two or outfit three. Fine, fine. Okay. But, um, yeah, no, uh, I would say that... Probably Julia and Huarang are two characters that I spent quite a bit of time with. Um, I've been progressing a lot of the combos and juggles with Paul as well. Always liked Paul Phoenix just because of the ridiculous flat top hairstyle that he has. And I really liked his uh, kind of leather biker jacket outfit that he had in uh, Tekken 3 as well. Always reminded me of Johnny Bravo. Yeah, there's definitely some Johnny Bravo going on there. doesn't help that one of his intro kind of initial fight walk-in scenes is literally him doing the combing his hair like Johnny Bravo. At least in Tekken 3. I haven't seen that one in uh, in Tekken 7 yet, but I imagine it may well be in there. And a special shout-out to King as well, because I had a, uh, a good time getting my ass absolutely handed to me by Liam while we were playing that. And uh, some of the different combo modes you can do there, being able to catch someone out of the air into a fighting grab, that's really, really cool to me. And I uh, definitely want to give him a bit of a play later on and experiment a little bit with some of that tech. Yeah, I like how we've both picked characters that have been in other games and pretended the new ones. Well, I suppose Kunimitsu 2 is kind of new, but... Not really. Same as Kunimitsu 1, basically. Yeah, I haven't really played too much with the newer characters, mostly because they don't particularly stand out to me, again, because I'm just not familiar with them. I would like to go back and try some of the Eliza fights again, because uh, she actually looked like she had some pretty cool combos and aerial attacks, and she's able to cover a lot of ground using her jet moves as well. Another thing that I wanted to mention, and we're kind of going back to the story mode a little here, but there was a... Yeah, there's actually just one or two fights in the game where you actually get given a gun in the game and I was looking into it and as part of the character customization, it turns out you can actually equip any character in the game with a gun and uh, obviously you can't use it in ranked modes but that does seem to be a slightly weird option in the game where it kind of actually goes into an almost over-the-shoulder perspective and you start firing your gun and aiming it around instead. I don't recall an over-the-shoulder over perspective. I know what you mean though. It's, it's not angles, quite over-the-shoulder but yeah, the yeah. camera definitely angles behind your character as opposed to side-on with both of them which was unexpected felt a little bit out of place wasn't really sure what to think about it but hey you know if you as i said just earlier if you're gonna put your bullshit in put it in the story mode shame we didn't get to use the minigun that eliza uses in one of the cutscenes though that would have been that's nice. true yeah i was really hoping that we would get a go on the minigun oh very quick shout out sorry one last one to the sumo wrestler character as well gamrayu gamrayu yeah exactly he's a really fun character to play as as well he has a lot of cool setup moves where you can kind of experiment with your different sumo poses and get a lot of moves out of that stance yeah slappy boy and slaps yeah an almost limitless slap combo so with that we come to the end of the show if you've enjoyed what you listen to you can as always find the podcast on spotify apple podcasts and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for total pod mode we also post regular video content of our playthroughs stream highlights as well as the podcast on our youtube channel total pod mode you can also find us on twitter by searching for at total pod mode or one word or you can find me at Hoodafunk on Twitter, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. And you can find me on Twitter at MrBames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash MrBames underscore TPF. And if you have enjoyed what you've listened to, please give us a like, give us a five-star rating, you know we're worth it. We'd love to hear from you as well. Send us some DMs, leave us a comment, engage. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, those ratings and engagement are really the best way to support this podcast, so if you would like to do so, then please do so. And on that note, we leave you for one more week. Until next time, goodbye. See you later, guys.